I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 7th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about covering sports and politics in 2016 and the differences and similarities therein. We'll also assess the college football season thus far and try to come to terms with the world in which Alabama beats LSU six times in a row. Some of us are having more difficulty with that than others. And we'll discuss Harvard's decision to suspend its men's soccer team, for the rest of this season over a series of degrading and sexually explicit scouting reports that male players wrote about their counterparts on the women's team. Stefan Fatsis is out this week, but joining me as always from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hi, how are you? Good. Filling in this week, it's Brian Curtis, formerly of Slate and Grantland, currently the editor at large for The Ringer, bringing us a, a West Coast perspective. We always try to keep things balanced on the show, talking to him from L.A. Hello, Brian. I'm happy to be the uh, Rule 5 pickup of the uh, of Hang Up and Listen this week. Such an honor. Does anyone oh. know Rules 1 through 4? It's like all those <laughs> other chapters of bankruptcy. It's one of those few cases in sports other than Super Bowl numerology where the yeah. rule is a Roman numeral. So mm. Rule V? It's Rule V, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any uh, Whimsy Watch nominees this week, uh, Pesca? Squirrel. Did you see the squirrel? Yeah, that was at uh, Lambeau yeah. on Sunday. I feel like I need to be like the Snopes of Whimsy mm -hmm. because people were really excited about a squirrel that ran onto the field in a Packers game last year. Yeah. And I feel like people should uh, curb their enthusiasm a little bit. I agree. Squirrel. I only said it because I knew it was going to be thrust upon us. But not only are people enthused by the squirrel, they all make the same joke. He's gotten into the end zone more than the team that's gotten into the end zone. <laughs> there was also the really bad Steelers onside kick where the guy tried the uh, Rabona where you kick it behind you. And the thing that I found interesting about that, Brian, was that the dude he did at the Steeler was Chris Boswell, who did it for Rice in 2013 and became like this viral sensation as Rice football uh, so rarely does. And he even did an instructional video 
on, <laughs> on how to execute that onside kick. It's the curse of the Rabona onside kick instructional video. Hubris. That's incredible. Well, this may be like the new uh, here's how not to do it instructional video. <laughs> Isn't that like Fred McGriff not knowing where the play is? <laughs> yes, he recorded this video for Tom Mimansky's onside kick world. Hey, it's a slightly <laughs> less uh, well-attended school in Stefan's basement. Um, the final whimsy of the week, at least on my end, was the Raiders punter Marquette King doing the pony celebration after uh, punting the ball to the Broncos' two-yard line uh, and did not get flagged for it, despite the fact that it seemed like one of his teammates was egging him on. Perhaps there's a punter exception to the celebration rules. Wait, you're not allowed to, away from the play, dance off the field however you wish to dance off the field? The, the rule is you're allowed to dance like as a solo yeah. act. It's like sort of an interpretive dance performance art exception to the rule. I don't really under – I guess it's a slippery slope argument, right, that it, you know, the, if you involve an, a teammate or multiple teammates, then you could have the Super Bowl shuffle video break out on the field, which and would be dangerous. Be so bad, really? to, it would be With dangerous. down, isn't that what we need? Children would, would be shocked and alarmed. But I have, another, I have another suggestion. You know, the way we saw that was the kick is downed at the one, and then they cut to punter dancing. But that could have been almost contemporaneous. Thus, the continuation of the play uh, rule wouldn't have been in effect. It could have been more spontaneous than we perceived it to be. The camera lied, is what you're saying. Also, Are, I think if you look at all the referees on the field, once the kick is made and down, there is no referee whose responsibility it is to look back at the punter <laughs> to make sure he is not exuberant. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure that will uh, that that'll be in the instructional video for the refs this week. Uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the future of sports TV. And when that bubble might possibly burst, we've got the ratings down in the NFL. ESPN hemorrhaging subscribers. What uh, will happen to this bubble? Uh, There's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 a year. You can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you have not joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangup plus. So I don't know um, if this is going to be a good opportunity for us this week. Everybody's thinking about the election. I guess it depends on how long the line is at your polling place. This could be a good, you know, counter-programming, good podcast to listen to while you're waiting for four hours in the rain to cast your ballot. But as we're recording this, there are less than 24 hours until the polls open on Tuesday morning. So on this day, this day before election day, we are not going to stick to sports. Brian, you wrote a piece a couple of days ago, headlined, the Cubs can't save us from Donald Trump. You quoted Maureen Dowd, who wrote that the Cubs' stellar season is a metaphor for everything that isn't crass and cruel this year. And you also quoted Thomas Boswell, who said, who knew that baseball could also be there when an entire country needs it? This this is idiocy, pure idiocy. Which has been true for a hundred plus years, right? It has been there when we needed it literally everything, you know, every time in the last hundred years and when we didn't. (laughs) I just thought it was funny. Um, There was this moment, of course, we're all tired of the election, I think. Well, actually, I'm not tired of the election, but I think most, a lot of people, it's it's sort of the neutral take on the election to say, I just can't wait for it to be over with. Or in fact, Mm -hmm. probably a lot of us would love it to keep going because it's wonderful material and it's really entertaining. But what I thought was funny was this whole thing of, you know, the World Series is where we can all come together and we're not, you know, fractured and and, and at each other's throats. And I thought, well, if you actually had a team in the World Series just concluded, you would kind of hate the other team, right? You wanted Corey Kluber to go out there and really fail. And this idea that sports is somehow like a place where we all come together and we don't hate each other is to me like the exact opposite of what sports actually is. Yeah, I think sports is the place where the hatred can not infect the soul. It's like a surface level, almost per- performative hatred, um, and it burns off easily, and it prov- and it provides a a nice role. If if sports can play that role instead of the other political party, we'd probably be better off societally. 
I guess so. Yeah, though I think I probably my 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 experience at a Trump rally was probably at like a University of Texas football game. You know, like <laughs> that's to me, and I don't remember it burning off that easily. You know, I mean, I think it should have because it didn't involve some like you know deep seated political belief. But I think I was probably angrier at a sporting event than I've ever been in any other part of my life. Ooh, Who's Charlie <laughs> Strong in that analogy, Lewandowski. <laughs> <laughs> let's not let's not make it that quite that direct, yeah. Um that probably means that you've lived a fairly good life, I would hope. Unless I think so. Unless uh the game was like really shitty, like uh an LSU Alabama game that we'll get to in a moment. But you know, as you also pointed out in your piece, Brian, this idea that sports is this kind of idealized fantasy land leaves out things like Aroldis Chapman's rap sheet and the red faced logo on the Cleveland Indians hats. <laughs> and it just makes sports seem more banal than they actually are and um, ignores the fact that like all of the hot button social issues, maybe not all, but many that we are animated about in the strictly political sphere um, come up in sports like every week. Right. I mean, when Chapman was pitching, you know, in World Series, I think it was game seven, right? Joe Buck brought up his you know, alleged predations against women and his suspension from MLB, right? That scene of the dude in both, man, who managed to be both in red and blackface in the stands at the, uh, for the Indians fan was just, was incredible, right? And I, I think it's funny that you would think that sports don't sort of contain those stuff, not just in the subtext, but literally the text of sports is all about politics. And, um, you know, it wasn't, I don't know, I didn't watch the World Series and feel like I got a respite. I feel like it was just kind of thrust in my face in the same way it is with politics. Well, they're both war by other means. One is war by analogy, you know, play-acting war sports, and one is war by, you know, actually out being more clever and uh, incurring fewer costs than war, yet getting your policies achieved. I don't ever subscribe to the stick-to-politics argument, but I do subscribe to the stick-to-good political argumentation. (laughs) So this is why when Kurt Schilling goes off, it's not that he goes off in a way that is opposite to my views, it's that... He is a factual and offensive. Eh, forget even the offensive. It's the a factual thing that offends me. Whereas I have, you know, encountered people with different political views than my own in the world of sports. And I said, that's cool. Not, and it's not only cool because the goalie for the uh, Boston Bruins takes a stand and won't visit the White House. It's not only cool because that gives a space for uh, liberal political activists to do the same. It's just cool that you've thought about the issues. That's fine with me. Uh, on the other hand, there are really kind of liberal sports uh, politics writers or thinkers who are wrong on their factual assertions. And I don't say stick to sports, but I say you're getting it wrong and you're out of your depth and you're not really adding a lot to the conversation. Sure. I think one thing, too, that's been so interesting is that Trump, you know, had the way he sort of brought sports into his stump speech, right? I think, like a lot of things, Trump probably does not, uh, shall we say, have a very well-honed view of these things. But he has a really uncanny knack for trying to figure out what his audience would like, right? So he's talked about football and the quote unquote wussification of football, right? They're gonna, you know, they're gonna end it and, and they're gonna be too many rules and it's not gonna be the same anymore. He's talked about Colin Kaepernick. Uh, last night, George Allen, the former senator and son of a football coach, was introducing him in Virginia and saying that Hillary wanted to change the name of the Washington Redskins and the crowd booed when that happened, right? So he's kind of got this this sort of knack of just kind of looking at his audience and saying, what would these people like to hear about sports? What opinion can I throw out there that, of course, has nothing to do with the presidential race at all, but will sort of connect me culturally with them? And I sort of think that's fascinating. Let's talk about CNN for a second. Brian, you've written about their approach to covering the election a couple of times. And the presence of, like, Jeffrey Lord and Corey Lewandowski, there's also the woman who was on a Trump surrogate who was talking about Ma- yeah. there was the one talking about Mazel Tov cocktails or <laughs> something like that. But again, like, like you were saying, Brian, the neutral take on this, I think is that like sports punditry can be good. But I think the neutral take is that like the worst kind of shouting first takey sports punditry is worse than anything else on television. But there's no equivalent in sports to having someone on whose explicit job is to lie to you in 
like preference of a particular team or candidate on a national broadcast. Now that's like the exclusive job of like the local, you know, Homer sportscaster. But it's not like if you turn on ESPN like during a game, you're going to have like some do like a Jeffrey Lord equivalent or am I am I wrong about that? No, I think that's mostly right. Um, I think maybe we could find some deflate gate exceptions, probably <laughs> like like a lot of things with that if we if we dug deep enough into the Boston media. But I think the um, I think it's true. I mean, I think when you watch CNN, there are people there whose job it is to explicitly say factual, take factual things that Jake Tapper and Brian Stelter and all the smart people on that network have asserted, like the election is not quote unquote rigged, right? Uh, and then, or Obama did not, or Hillary Clinton did not start the birther movement as Trump contended. And then they just say the opposite, factually. Like they just come on TV and constantly say the opposite. And even like your worst Homer announcer, you know, may whine about the referees and, and say his team was cheated, but I don't think he would sort of say like, no, you know, the Cowboys did not actually score a touchdown, right? It's a mass, you know, delusion or figment of your imagination. And the Homer, the Homer announcer, um, is on an explicitly partisan network. And right. CNN, the value proposition they claim to be offering is news. <laughs> right. I mean, think about in sports, think about when Stephen A. Smith made that made a factual statement about Kevin Durant a couple of years. Was it a couple of years ago now? Right. About how Durant, you know, he was reporting on Durant and Durant got furious and everybody turned on Stephen A. Smith. And you realize that Part of the reason of that was, in addition to kind of being the mono-a-mono confrontation between them, was the fact that, like, Smith was actually trying to assert something factual. And in fact, like, 99% of what happens on sports TV is the Warriors are in trouble. No, the Warriors aren't in trouble, which is just sort of a completely harmless opinion and doesn't have any effect on anybody. But the bizarre nature of the composition of the uh, commentariat on CNN there's no, it's not applicable to sports media. I mean, if you look at how MSNBC casts its panels, what they've generally done and what CNN did before it was apparent that Trump would be the nominee is to say, okay, our country has these debates and here's the line in the middle. So we'll have some from the right and some from the left. And then Trump comes along and confounds it so that the people from the right aren't speaking for him or are in opposition to him or are, you know, object to him. So you've got to, if you're going, this is CNN's calculation. Well, if we're going to cover an election, you got to not just find uh, right or conservative people, you've got to find Trump people. So there's no equivalent in sports. In sports, you could cast your network as, you know, I'll have Shannon Sharp as the voice of the, I don't know, modernity or the black athlete or the, uh, you know, um, athlete athlete. And you'll have Skip Bayless is the voice of the atavistic angry fan. Although, you know, I know, I know you like Skip, uh, Brian, but there's no equivalent in sports where some sport comes along, you know, pisses off the Skip Bayless type, but still has to be addressed. You know, it's almost as if as big as Deflategate is, it overwhelmed every other sport and the traditionalists and and you know it fractured the pro or against he was deflating football uh public so it just goes to right. show how crazy trump is but i think that's true and it but it also speaks to cnn right when you say that because why did cnn need someone to just be the pro-trump point of view right i mean at the end of the day they could have just had a mix of conservatives and liberals on that network and probably just gotten through the day just fine right they didn't you know with, with trump you're sort of saying well we just need someone to parrot the lies of Donald Trump, which is a really strange value proposition. And to your point about sports TV, I think that's definitely true. But I think when you look like at Skip, for instance, he's starting to say things like, my Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl, right? It's like he, in a way, is not just becoming a guy who's arguing and kind of takes a large swath of the sports TV argument, but somebody's like, this is going to be a Cowboys fan on TV. And so if you like the Cowboys, you're going to be on Skip's side. And if you hate the Cowboys, you're going to watch him. Uh, allegedly, to hate on the Cowboys, which I think is kind of funny. Although Skip is not uh, being paid by the Cowboys, unlike Corey Lewandowski. (laughs) Right, he's not advising Jerry Jones on how to handle the uh, Romo versus Dak Prescott controversy. There is a supply and demand issue with Trump surrogates, right? Um, I have talked frequently about the uh, (laughs) drop-off in the level of college football announcers once you get to like the ESPNU game. (laughs) Because you, you've got like, you know, 70 games that are televised on Saturday now and like the 70th team is not going to be up there with the uh, Herb Street and Fowler. But with 
the Trump surrogates, you're already like constrained by the fact that you need people who are willing to support like lunacy. And then you like go down to like the people who are willing to support lunacy who you could plausibly put on television without fear (laughs) that they're going to like Heil Hitler or something. So (laughs) it's just like a very narrow band of humans that could possibly be on the network, which as back to Brian's point, raised the question of like, why are we even like fishing from this pool to begin with? Yeah. I mean, that's the category scrambling part, right? Because you just assume before, if you have liberals and conservatives, they would just support the candidate more or less. They may have a difference here and there, but that would kind of play their roles on television. The, the Paul Begala kind of position. Yeah. I, and I think, by the way, your 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 point is, the the good news for CNN is that hopefully all these people's contracts like expire <laughs> at midnight tomorrow or whenever <laughs> the election is called, right? So you need them on TV, but you actually need them on TV for like six months, and then they'll never be useful to anyone again. Yeah. Um, now, there's another interesting thing that goes on between sports and politics, or the the comparison. So, when when the panels are cast in the world of uh, sports, you, you, it's similar to how the panels are cast. There's like a right left divide, and yet I think that things change so much in sports because there's empirical data as opposed to one election every two or four years. And as uh, teams win or teams lose, you've got to change your talking points. But it's not the same with politics where you could just pound the same talking points. And in politics, whatever everyone's opinion is, that's the thing that becomes truth because opinion translates to vote and that person wins. But in sports, it doesn't matter if everyone says that Cam Newton can't win a championship if Cam Newton goes out and wins a championship. Right. No, I think that's true. I think it's also funny, though, in politics, you've seen like what has replaced like game results, weekly game results, which is the release of polls, right? So right now, if you if I want to go on television and insist that Trump is going to win the election tomorrow, I could cherry pick from a vast buffet of polls, right? Mm-hmm. And say, look, he's ahead in Ohio. He's, a, he's tied in Florida. He's tied in New Hampshire, right? He's uh, in this um, LA Times poll. He's ahead by six points. Uh, you know, he's gonna, it's going to be a blowout. Uh, so I think that's sort of become the weekly game result is now that we have so much access to polling data that uh, you can pick one new one every week. You know, I think as I'm talking about this, I think I've found an answer to why our politics are so bad. Think about if sports operated under the same rules as politics. And if all that it took for the Cubs to win the World Series was Indians partisans to sort of wreck the process, right? To just deny the Cubs victories, even if it hurt the Indians. You know, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but because there are games and because there are real winners and losers, we could say he won, you lost. But in politics, with so many people having the levers of control, having access to the breaks, it makes the whole thing seem dysfunctional. You know, in politics, laws don't get passed. In sports, there is a champion every season, no matter what. So, you know, the the ideas of dysfunction are like dysfunction in the process. Maybe the NFL is dysfunctional, yet they're going to crown a champion. So there's still someone who's the winner. But in politics, you could drag it out and make no one win for so long, and then everyone gets upset by it. Yeah, I think that's true, though. If you spend some time on the message boards that Josh and I have uh, spent time on, you will find that the NFL and the NCAA have nicely replaced, you know, any notion of quote-unquote government as a dysfunctional Mm. kind of beast that you can stick knives into uh, again and again. And you will also find that games like election results can just be contested until the end of time, right? You can just insist that, you know, the quarterback got sick and if that hadn't happened or the refs were in the bag. And you can also insist, by the way, that the announcers were sort of, you know, biased against your team, right? Just like in the sense that somehow we we, we detect bias in the MSM in the political arena. I think this will be a nice uh, transition into our next conversation. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Saturday night in Baton Rouge, Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide beat LSU for the sixth time in a row, shutting out the Tigers 10 to nothing. 
Although on a positive note, LSU did cross midfield multiple times, a feat they accomplished just once in losing to Bama 21 to nothing in the 2012 National Championship game. Alabama has won the national title three of the last seven seasons, including last year. They're ranked number one again in 2016. They'll be ahead of Michigan, Clemson, and Washington in the next uh, playoff update ranking thing. Brian, I would say that Alabama is most reminiscent of the uh, old New York Yankees model of greatness because they get all the best players and spend the most money, although one difference would be that they don't spend the money on the players. Uh, But in college football, I think coaching is more important than in any other sport. And so when you give the best coach the best players, then it just seems really unfair. And also there there were multiple uncalled holding penalties on (laughs) Jalen Hurts' touchdown run. Plus, Patrick Peterson was in bounds in that interception several years ago. So this really shouldn't be a six-year uh, losing streak. This is what we're talking about, right? The uh, contesting the election results. Yeah, it's funny. I think like it would have to be, if, uh, to complete the analogy with the Yankees, if Joe Torre, uh, as admirable as he is, actually had that much effect on a baseball game, right? Because we Nick Saban has that much effect on football. And I sort of think college football has a Nick Saban problem and specifically the SEC West SEC West has a Nick Saban problem because he's really that good. And the, if the problem is, you know, like for Les miles, who was fired at LSU earlier this year, or, you know, various like Kevin, someone or the Aggies who just lost to Alabama a couple of weeks ago, like if they can't beat him, if they're, if they're being, you know, criticized for not being able to beat Alabama, well, nobody can kind of beat Alabama. And I'm not sure that we've seen in our lifetime that sort of level of dominance in uh, in college football, or really any sport where you can all chalk it up to one sort of coach rather than this crazily talented group of people. Well, the recruiting is just ridiculous. And yeah. these, these numbers are a little squirrely. And Brian, you may know better than I do. But I've seen like people who've aggregated data that say that Alabama has more five-star recruits and five stars being the best, and there are about 25 or 30 of those per year, depending on what service you look at, that Alabama has more five-star recruits on its roster than, for example, the entire Big 12 conference has <laughs> that I believe I in aggregate. And so, Certainly Big 12 on defense. <laughs> <laughs> they have yeah. one. The Big 12 on defense is like the Michelin guide. Three stars is the best. <laughs> What's funny to me about Alabama though is it's like we if we if we just like if you don't pay attention to college football right you imagine it's just this monolith that kind of rolls out and does the same thing every year. In fact, if we looked at Alabama's offense a couple years ago and looked at it right now, it would look totally different, right? They've modernized incredibly and, and Nick Saban sort of realized he had to run a much more kind of modern sort of spread offense to compete in college football now. And also the thing about Alabama that's incredible to me is, you know, with a couple of exceptions, maybe A.J. McCarron's sort of junior year, they haven't had fantastic quarterback play, really. And in fact, they sort of at times won despite their quarterback uh, in this in this glorious run. And if you watch, like, you know, Saturday's game, would you say the quarterback play was a net plus for Alabama? Well, certainly, like, at a couple of key plays, Right. But what Saban and now Kiffin have been able to do together is squeeze out all these victories without the typical model of college football, which is a giant, you know, Heisman level quarterback captaining the ship. So I I find that the two big um, debates, ongoing debates in sports, two big points are here are some things that are terrible about sports, that there are no dynasties and there's too much parity and you don't know who's good. And the second big one is that there are dynasties and that there's no parity and only one team's good. I love that Alabama is so good for a couple reasons. One, if anyone ever beats them, it means something, you know, it'll attract eyeballs. Two, it's this kind of nice measuring stick. So like, if, if, if the entire college football season comes down to ranking four teams, well, it's nice to have an absolute zero or the opposite, you know, uh, that you know what the boiling point is. You know what the ne plus ultra of, because I'm trying to get as much French into my college football discussion with this in the Michelin Guide. But you know what the lodestar is? So there's Alabama. And then just figure out a way to whoever played teams that played Alabama. Those could be two, three, and four. And then one team will eventually lose to Alabama. But... 
dynasties maybe seem unfair or seemed unfair before the age of free agency or in the old days of college football when you could pay recruits and have, you know, UCLA-esque advantages. It seems if Alabama didn't have a dynasty, we'd all be saying that dynasties are impossible in college football, wouldn't we? Yeah, and I, I, I think the thing about dynasties in college football, by the way, is that they're all, to, to expand on your point a little bit, is that they're all coach-based. They're not school-based, really. Yeah. There's no such thing as, as great schools. There are great coaches, right? Alabama, besides that one, Gene Stallings, uh, national title where George T. ran down Kevin Williams, Alabama did nothing but screw around for decades before Nick Saban gets, got there. Now they're yeah. great. Michigan screwed around. Jim Harbaugh's there. Now they're in the top four. Uh, Urban Meyer you know, comes in and after Jim Trestle's run, you know, brings Ohio State back to national championship level. So it's funny. It's like we would love to, Alabama being good is something that's, I agree with you, awesome. It is a great sort of barometer for all the rest of us, uh, poor schlubs who went to Big 12 schools. But it's really, and it's sort of a nice little kind of regional thing. But we, we all admit, right, that if we just put Nick Saban in virtually any school other than New Mexico State, that that would be the new power center, one of the power centers of college football, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when David Shula was coach and the idea was, look, we just got to get past the idea that Alabama is going to be great. It doesn't have natural (laughs) advantages. The states, even if you get all the best kids from Alabama, it doesn't even have half as many people as neighboring state Georgia or a fifth the people, the population of Florida. It has fewer, like of the states that it borders, it only has more students than Mississippi. So why would it have this national advantage? Because it's so good that its recruiting footprint is basically the whole country and certainly everywhere in the South. And it's all Nick Saban. He did it. He earned it. Well, it's like the John Calipari model, right? That the same guys who were going to play for him in Memphis because of his pedigree are now going to play for him at Kentucky. And But Calipari has to recruit for a year. And it just seems much harder to do if you miss out on that one class or two classes in college football. Well, actually, you could argue that it's harder in basketball because because of one and done. Yeah, you got to replenish every year. But then you could argue the other side that it's actually harder in college football because to get these great recruits and to tell them you won't be playing for two or three years, if Nick Saban didn't do it, it would seem undoable. Well, they've got guys who go to the NFL early and they, you know, if you're a great freshman, you're going to play. I don't think... They've got like five stars who are sitting on the bench for for multiple years. But I would say to your point, I agree that if Alabama didn't exist, we would be talking about how this is an era of great parity in college football, right, Brian? I mean, you've had TCU and Baylor, for example, last year come from being historically not only afterthoughts but laughingstocks, um, yeah. at least in recent decades. And I think a lot of that is coaching. And it's because of innovations in offense in particular that have allowed the best, smartest coaches to scheme in such a way that you can achieve like unbelievable things with players who are three stars out of uh, you know high school as opposed to like all the NFL guys that Alabama has. Yeah, I think that's true. But it's very, it's very coach-based in the sense that, like, Gary Patterson and Art Bryles could have gone to other schools if they wanted to, right? They could have gotten jobs at, like, Tennessee or Arkansas or even maybe places like Texas. But they wanted to stay at those schools. And I think there was this little bubble that's probably still intact uh, with where there were a bunch of really good coaches who just didn't take the next offer, in a way, and decided, like, okay, I'm going to go, I have this offense, as you say, that's innovative enough that I can score a lot of points, and I'm going to stay here and try to win a national championship or at least make the playoff at this smallish school, this non-power. And that's part of the re- that's really the only reason why TCU and Baylor have been as good for as long as they've been good. And don't worry, and we'll think, talk about I'm, Baylor in the next segment. We will not, we'll not let it drop there. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that will continue because of the uh, what Chip Kelly has taught all the innovative offensive-minded college coaches. Um, last thing for you, Brian, is that there is something analogous to politics in college football. And it's, it is one of the places in American life and culture that is like super factional and regional. And there is also just around these like playoff announcements, it just makes me think and realize that there's kind of like baked in trolling 
to college football <laughs> that doesn't really right. exist in other sports. And that I think it's like kind of become narrower and narrower because like back in the day, it used to be that the sport was like set up explicitly so as the best teams wouldn't play each other. And now it's just we're kind of like teasing fans a little bit. But there is still this like SEC versus Big 12 versus West Coast um, that's just like totally built into the structure of the sport and leads fans to take these like very political stances about like what they believe in a larger sense about the sport. Absolutely. I think I once wrote that uh, chanting SEC at a football game was the last polite way to root for the South (laughs) in American life. And like when you see the sort of chest thumping about Alabama being number one, about like Texas, you know, which is the, you know, dynamic version of the South, economically dynamic version of the South, the one that's gaining tons of population, the one that's, you know, so large in American life being terrible via the Big 12 being terrible. All of that is loaded with political freight and and great, right? I mean, that's sort of what makes it fun because it seems like it's about something more than just football and more than just the stupid playoff and more than just all these kind of silly things that we, we have around college football. I think it's funny that when we talk about all this stuff, though, that the West doesn't really have an identity, right? Washington is number four. Um, other than, you know, USC's run, which was seen as kind of the glamour of LA and of almost a pro team in college football. We don't what, what about Oregon? The, yeah, a little bit, I guess. But what was the identity of Oregon and the Pac twelve, right? Why Western in a, I mean, what is the what I guess with Oregon that was like they were really trying hard with all the uniform combinations. There was a very like kind of nouveau riche sort of like we are going to impose ourselves on you with our lavish facilities and our like yeah. reflective metallic helmets. It was yeah, it was uh, it was a winery for sure. It was a vintner. <laughs> <laughs> so the West Coast is innovation, Silicon Valley, crazy money, crazy new money flowing around, that kind of thing. Disruption. Yeah. Yeah. I I like your point about the only place that is acceptable to root for the South and in the New Yorker, and it might have been a Larissa McFarquhar article, but someone else was writing about uh, Trump's appeal, you know, going beyond just the uh, economic dislocation argument. Trump voters are people for whom their place has meaning and borders have meaning and they rally around what the meaning of their geographic place was. She spent a lot of time in West Virginia. Now, the ugly side of that is, you know, being anti, being xenophobic, but the positive, benign, but I would say positive side of that, the celebration of that is best seen in college sports. So yeah, there is, there is a parallel there. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, let's move on to our last topic in uh, a college sports transition of sorts. Um, Late last week, Harvard announced that its men's soccer team would forfeit the remaining games on its schedule due to what the university president termed the team's behavior and the failure to be forthcoming when initially questioned. That behavior was the compilation and distribution of scouting reports in which uh, so-called scouting reports, I should say, in which the school's women's soccer recruits were evaluated on their hotness and their supposed preferred sexual positions. As the Harvard Crimson reported in breaking the story, the 2012 report included an introduction that read, while some of the scouting report last year was wrong, the overall consensus that a certain player whose name was redacted was both the hottest and the most STD-ridden was confirmed. Um, though that 2012 report was the first one the Crimson discovered, the school's athletic director reported that the practice appears to be more widespread across the team and has continued beyond 2012, including in 2016. And to sort of continue the trend here of not sticking to sports, 
I don't know if this would have happened, Brian, if not for the like Access Hollywood tape locker room talk conversation. Like this is literal locker room talk, albeit in a spreadsheet. But do you agree that this is like the post-Trump world? Like this is the reaction to it? Perhaps. I think that's probably part of it. I think it's probably more of the post-Jameis Winston and post-Baylor world, um, which is not to say that these guys are accused of those kinds of, of things, but that the sort of college foot or you know college programs are on the lookout for any hint of you know sort of not only just violence uh, against women but sort of you know talk like that right I mean I don't we think it's part of a larger calculus than just something that Donald Trump said to Billy Bush Yeah, I think so. But um, you know, also this weekend. Baylor fans were all black to protest the firing of Art Bryles. There was a CAB banner, Coach Art Bryles, hanging from a suite. And there is this kind of counter-movement, counter-protest, just like there was at Penn State, right? Claiming that it was the coach who was the wronged party here. And there was just a report in the Wall Street Journal. And these numbers, like I've been following this story But these numbers were even shocking to me. I guess I hadn't realized what the count was. Sexual or domestic assault accusations against 19 players, 19 different players in the last five years at Baylor. So, Mike, I think the notable thing here is that it was surprising that what happened at Harvard with the cancellation of the season happened because I think we're used to the situation more at at Baylor where universities are censured and maybe some people lose their jobs, but the season is never canceled. And so these are the kind of norms that have been established. Yeah. And I think some of the big differences were a, the Baylor transgressions were worse and were criminal and went be and were attacks on victims as opposed to I know that the uh, Google Docs were said to be accessible by the public, the Harvard Google Docs that these uh, conversations took place on. But that seems to be an inaccurate way to describe them. I don't know that they ever were accessed by the public. I've used Google Docs. Are all Google Docs accessible? I've well, always had to you can set in. the You can set the settings. You can make yeah. them public or private. But anyway, there's no evidence that anyone outside the circle ever found them until the crimson was tipped off to him. So yes, the Baylor stuff was worse, but, and this is... To say the Baylor stuff is worse is an understatement, right? Yeah, it's, I it's mean, like no, a no, gigantic no. understatement. So the difference is the Baylor stuff was worse, and yet their fans rallied around the cause of their team in a way that even the Harvard team didn't. And I was kind of thinking about the issues of the Harvard team with the assumption that the team was going to come out and say, you know, this isn't right. And then the, uh, you know, usual arguments would be enjoined. But in fact, the team says this punishment was correct. It was signed by the whole team. So who am I to say it wasn't? And I think it was. And the reason why it really was is because at first glance, I said to myself, wow, they canceled the whole season. But you know what? That's not a big deal. I uh, Sure, they would have made the NCAA playoffs, but it's an extracurricular activity. That's really what it is. And we've totally lose sight of that with Baylor because, of course, it's not an extracurricular activity. It's a million money-making activity. But if we really had the perspective of what the punishment was, you, ca- it's, you can't participate in your school play. You can't participate in being in the, the band. You're, you're not doing your extracurricular activity. It's actually a very light sanction and uh except for the fact that you know college football has become something other than an extracurricular activity yeah i think also the two what's notable here is that just a totally different approach of the two schools right harvard gets wind of this gets wind that it wasn't just something that happened in 2012 but it's happening since has happened since then and they shut down the whole program right what Baylor did is we're all sort of distracted by the fact that Art Bryles was cashiered in this, but they left Art Bryles' entire staff basically intact with a new interim coach. And part of what – it's not just truthers who are talking about this, like uh, at Penn State, as you mentioned, Josh, but the entire coaching staff released this statement on Twitter this weekend saying that they didn't believe that Art Bryles was guilty. And the head coach, the interim head coach of Baylor, Jim Grobe, didn't know the statement was coming out on Twitter until it was on Twitter. Right, So you didn't go in and clean out the program and just go to all the assistants, even the ones who didn't know this was going on, and say, look, 
we'll pay the rest of your contract, but you got to go. We have to start over here, right? This has got to be out, out, everybody out, including, by the way, Art Bryles' son, who is the, the offensive coordinator of Baylor. They just left them all intact. And well, so Jim Grobe the- was brought in, right, as like the serious, serious man. Like he had a good reputation and he's taken this like crazy see no evil approach, right? Like yeah. one of the th- big things that because made news this year is he like claimed not to know who Sean Oakman was, who was the star right. from the past team who'd been one of the people accused and one of, in one of these allegations. And his defense was like, I wasn't here. It's like, fuck you, man. It's like right. your I, responsibility I, I, is to know what happened and who these people are if you're, you've been tasked with like changing the program. I completely agree. And not to defend him at all, but he's also been given the untenable position of here are all of Art's assistants. This is your staff. In order to make the football team run and to call the plays, you've and you've got to you know deal with these guys. Every and he day. didn't have to take the job if he didn't want. No, it, so. he didn't have to take the job. And so why what Baylor did was to try essentially to do a halfway measure to stop the to to clean up and try to you know come back after this ridiculous, disgusting sort of scandal. And they and and this is what you get when you do a halfway measure. And by the way, in keeping the staff, what you've done is you you keep the people who've made the uh, initial and secondary absolute wrong decision about how to deal with their situation. I mean, a college football team is like a corporation and things don't get to the CEO until underlings have vetted them and in this case made mistakes. So you're keeping those people in. Um, there's another thing about the Harvard case that we haven't talked about. So I was thinking about Duke lacrosse. I'm sure a lot of people were, and that was, uh, they were found, oh, they were, you know, special circumstances where they were actually exonerated of the crime, which North Carolina made a special step to do. But when you found out what they did do, their reputations were hurt. And I'm sure someone made the point to the Harvard soccer team, you could fight this guys, but do you want to be Duke lacrosse for the rest of your life? Do you want that hanging over your head? And I think it's very important to note that the Harvard soccer players have so many options in life. And they said to themselves, it's not worth it. We're ruining an extremely promising career. If we fight this, we're in, in fact, if we don't get in front of this and say all the right things, and maybe it's honest, but as a calculation, what they have to face in life would be absolutely undermined if they fought the accusations. Now think of Baylor. Um, all those assistant coaches, if they were all fired, their life would be put back, set back. And think about the options of all the players. You know, if they got like some death penalty as a program, those players don't have too many great life options. You can't say to them, think about the uh, think about the fullness of your life as it heads out, as it lays out before you. And if the wrong thing happens with your college football program, it's all going to go to hell. No, I mean, to them, they see it as their college football career might be the highlight of their life. So I think that life opportunities had a big uh, influence about how the different decisions were made too. Well, back to the kind of specifics of the Harvard situation, I think... I was surprised that the season got canceled. I had read the initial story, and then when I saw the follow-up that had been canceled, I must confess that I had not expected that to be the outcome, which I think speaks both to what was actually done, but more to the fact that our expectations are so low for the behavior of college um, athletes, but I I think it's like actually more akin to what you often read about, about like shitty frat behavior. And like, if you look at, uh, you know, online, wherever you read this, a lot of like the riddle related links are to like frat guy gets kicked out of, you know, school for distributing this letter, like rating every girl in the, in the dorm or something like that. Like that is the, these are, this is the kind of neighborhood that we're in, but on the one hand, I think it's not callous or ridiculous to say, as Mike was kind of alluding to, that these people were not intending this to go public. And you can you can kind of feel bad for them that it did, although way less bad than you feel for the, you know, individual women who were objectified and were, you know, the the reasons that this was bad, I think, are that saying things about individual people that are demeaning and cruel. The fact that it was institutionalized in the way that it was, that it was like passed down from year to year as a tradition of the team, 
I think makes sense uh, for why uh, there was uh, the the punishment that existed. And also it's just like the culture that sports are associated with being demeaning and objectifying to women. And that's like the worst aspect of it. And that's why I think it's great that in kind of contrast to what even my expectations were as somebody who I would hope, uh, you know, would expect more than the average fan, um, the, the fact that they went further than I thought they would. I think that's a really good point about the, about the documents being passed down, right? It's sort of like it becomes, it becomes like the, the papers of a finals club or a secret society, right? That this is like somehow, <laughs> somehow part of being a player, a soccer player at Harvard, is that this is this document is passed down? Um, that is right. Finals clubs, right? Yes. I know everything I know about Harvard from the social network. Um, <laughs> but the uh, yeah, and 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 what's funny too is that like it's or just I don't know. Funny is the right word, but what is just bizarre too is like if they had had this, if these players had had this exact same piggish, misogynistic conversation just over beers or something like nothing. Nothing happens, right? This is just it is literally locker room talk. And the fact that they, for some bizarre reason, put it in a Google Doc. That they could all update, I guess, and pass it around is how we got to this scandal. And I just don't understand why you would even, if we if we go ahead and sort of all agree that the document itself is just terrible. Why did you want it in a document? What was the purpose of this? I guess you know ease of transmission. I don't know. I mean, the it, it's the same conversation around Trump and what he said and. The people who defended it were like, this is just how men talk and doesn't everybody say grab them by the pussy. That's like a totally normal thing for people to say. I think that when you're a freshman in college or when you're in college, people do get together and talk about like, oh, who's like the hot girl on your hall and who like, you know, or things that are more explicit than that. Or Harvard students invent companies that become the seventh largest in America based on those conversations. (laughs) Exactly. But the thing that like, struck me was like, okay, about this particular woman, like we were correct that she had a lot of STDs. Like that to me does not strike me as like normal behavior and conversation. And the fact that this was institutionalized and it was not like an informal thing like, oh, hey, what do you think of this girl? It was like, let's all sit down together like as the men. And like there was something predatory about it. That's like these yeah. are the freshman women. Like let's strategize about like how we can kind of attack this problem and not like know who these people are, but just like objectify them and say cruel things about them. Yeah. And there was supposed to be a brother team, sister team uh, aspect to sports teams. I will say that when I read about the stuff in uh, the New York Times and there were vague descriptions, I said, yeah, that's not great. In fact, that's bad. And you'd hope someone would object. But that's what goes on. But then, as I read about the more detailed descriptions in the Crimson, it's just hard to get away from how disgusting and vile it is. So I have advice for younger men, even younger women, because lust is part of a human condition. I would say this, lust vaguely, lust (laughs) vaguely. If you get specific about positions, about what form your lust will take, huge turnoff. Could lose the season based on it. Uh, great way to end, Mike. Uh, now it's time for... <laughs> it is. I don't know if it Those is. Those are the words to take with you. I don't know if yeah. it is. I'm just giving you affirmation because I, okay. uh, I think you deserve it. You're a great person. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, and we're going to go back to uh, a reference from earlier in the show. It was, in fact, uh, Scotty Nell Hughes who had the following to say on CNN. Also, you look at Jay-Z, and we talked about this that night, that he might be working on it, but one of his main videos starts off with a crowd throwing Mazeltov cocktails at the police, and this very much anti-police. There's nothing more anti-police than the Mazeltov cocktail. <laughs> Brian, are you ready to uh, fire a Mazeltov cocktail in our direction? 
Indeed I am, Josh. Boys, I have an update from the continuing story of the death of football. Let me take you back to Halloween night last week. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, in the house I grew up in. My old neighborhood is really a magical place. It has the friendliness and small-town folksiness via Norman Rockwell and the ludicrously wonderful Texas accents via Matthew McConaughey. And on Halloween, I handed out candy to nearly 700 trick-or-treaters. That's right, 700 kids came by my door, allowing me to conduct a Frank Luntz focus group on what the kids of today really like. Among the costumes I saw, Iron Man, Spider-Man, Captain America, Ray and Kylo Ren from The Force Awakens, Bride of Frankenstein, and Hillary Clinton, which this being Texas, I want to note, were not the actual same costume. Witches, Dracula, Power Rangers, Rugnet Ordor of the actual Rangers, soccer players, and one kid who, when I pressed him as to what he was, touchingly said, I'm a student. But here's what I didn't see. A single kid out of this whole 700 dressed as a football player. No Tony Romos, no Dak Prescotts, no Zeke Elliotts, zero out of 700. And this is in Texas, a state that 538 would say football has a better than 99.9% chance of succeeding in. Now, as evidence that football is actually dying, this anecdote is about as worthwhile as the time that the Wall Street Journal's Peggy Noonan saw a bunch of Mitt Romney yard signs in 2012 and extrapolated from there that Romney would win the election. I don't have those kind of predictive powers. But if football does begin to decline in the American imagination, I suspect that Halloween 2016 may offer a preview of what that decline would look like. For one thing, it's going to start young. Even those of us veteran football fans tied up in knots by concussions and CTE and Roger Goodell are unlikely to totally abandon the sport, right? We're the equivalent of those early voters in Clark County, Nevada. Our preference at this point is locked in. Second, we think that football players could be shoved out of the front of kids' minds by athletes in other sports, NBA players or maybe Premier League stars. But football players could also be shoved aside by the Avengers or Star Wars villains, right? We are a generation of newish parents, and I speak for myself here, that wasted nearly as much of our lives on summer movies and video games as we did on sports. And it figures that our bequest to our kids is as likely to be Tony Stark as it is Tony Romo. And finally, if football does quote-unquote die in some sense, the process won't be cataclysmic and immediate, like this season's plunging ratings would seem to suggest. While I didn't see a single trick-or-treater in a football uniform, I saw a dozen or more dads in their 30s and 40s wearing Dallas Cowboys jerseys. And it's not inconceivable that what happens to football will be what already happened to baseball. It'll continue to be wildly popular for decades. But down the line, we'll glance around the crowd and see that much of it is comprised by old guys. Old guys like us. By the way, my Halloween costume was a gag Cowboys t-shirt that said Dak Zeke 2016, part of my effort to strenuously avoid a political conversation while I was in Texas. The kids I met were baffled, but the 30-somethings that love football and are <laughs> unlikely to abandon the sport agreed with me that the shirt was totally awesome. Great shirt. <laughs> I've seen the I've seen the pictures. It's a quality T-shirt. Uh, Mike, usually go first. I forgot. Are you okay with uh, batting second today? Yeah, it was nice. You slotted me down. That's okay. I could bunt uh, Curdo along. All right. What's your Mazel Tov cocktail? So Sam Hinkie of the 76ers told us to trust the process and then the 76ers were bad. And then he said, trust the process and the 76ers were still bad. And then he said, trust the boom, he was fired. But now Joel Embiid is actually playing for the 76ers and the guy seems pretty great. I mean, the averages are something like uh, four games, you know, is averaging 18.6 rebounds and at one and a half assists, but that doesn't tell the full story of his potential. Perhaps a fuller story was told in Sports Illustrated where they interviewed him about being part of the process. And he said, I've been thinking a lot about the process and I really think like I'm the process, like the process is about me. And this pull quote, I really feel like I'm the process stuck. So Joel Embiid has been nicknamed the process. And this history would teach us is bad news for Joel Embiid because this is a what linguists would call a reappropriation. There are words like, you know, you'll hear on college campuses about queer studies, for instance, a reappropriation of a term that was an insult or geek culture. Same thing. In politics right now, there are a couple of reappropriations, one on each side that are going on. And of course, definitionally, half of those people are going to be pretty upset. Deplorables. These are what Trump fans call themselves 
after Hillary Clinton invoked the basket of deplorables analogy, whereas females who are for Hillary Clinton are proudly saying they're nasty women, a reappropriation of a Trump insult. I found out that beyond reappropriation, the Dutch have an excellent term for this. I believe it is pronounced goizenam, and goizenam are derived from the goizen, Dutch opponents to Spanish rule in the 1500s, who eventually created the Netherlands. They were derisively called beggars, or go in French, and they appropriated that, and so they became the goizenim, similarly the sans-culottes from the French Revolution. But the reason I think that this goizeniming of Joel Embiid might not work out is the other very famous example I could think of in sports was about Jabba Chamberlain. And remember the Jabba rules, these uh, these dictates about how to use the fragile Yankee pitcher. And the Yankee fans went crazy and printed up t-shirts that said Jabba rules. Well, guess what? Jabba was babied by the Yankees. He was beset by a swarm of budges in Cleveland. And the Jabba rules really faded into history as just one guy who was maybe a good setup man for a couple seasons. Joel Embiid needs to stop being the process and just become the processed. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Josh, what's your Mazel Tov cocktail? Why, thank you. So Saints 49ers, eight seconds left in the first half. Saints have it at the 49ers 13-yard line. One offensive play to go since they're just eight seconds. They can try to throw it in the end zone. But there's nobody open. Drew Brees throws it away. But wait, there's a flag on the play. Actually, there are a lot of flags on the play. Here's referee Jerome Boger. Multiple fouls on the play, all against the defense. Holding. Defense. Number 25. That foul is declined. Holding. Defense. Number 27. That penalty is declined. Holding. Defense. Number 35 is accepted. Five-yard penalty. Automatic first time. Poor number 35. That's Eric Reed. How did they decide to accept it on that yeah, guy? Why is <laughs> the referee just thought Eric Reed's holding was a little bit more holdy than the other holdings? <laughs> so the 49ers. I hear de- Eric Reed when he holds you, you really feel held. <laughs> the 49ers defenders held every Saints receiver on purpose. The idea was that for the Saints, the time on the clock was a lot more valuable than the five-yard penalty for defensive holding. And indeed, the Saints had to kick a field goal because there were just four seconds left on the clock. And indeed, the Saints had to kick a field goal because there were just four seconds left on the clock. A reporter asked 49ers coach Chip Kelly about it uh, after the game, and he said, yeah, that's by design. That's something that we work on during the week. No, really, what you need to work on. Um, It worked out just how we wanted it to. It's a designed play. It's a smart football play. So I've talked about perverse incentives in sports on the podcast before, instances in which actions that are supposed to penalize a team benefit them instead. The most well-known example is the intentional foul in the NBA, fouling a guy who's a bad free throw shooter. Fouls are supposed to be bad and a thing you don't want to do. Um, You get closer to fouling out. The other team gets a chance to score some points. But if the guy doing the fouling isn't someone who's particularly valuable and the guy doing the free throw shooter is very bad at shooting free throws, then it can work out in your favor. You can find stuff like this in every sport, like tactical fouling in soccer, when you subtly or not so subtly kick a guy's heels when he's on a breakaway. It's not quite the same thing in baseball, but there's the fetishization in some circles of giving away outs to the other team by sacrifice bunting or grounding the ball to the right side to move a runner over to third. There's also the intentional walk, whereby you put a guy on base on purpose to avoid a dangerous hitter or set up a double play. In tennis, you can lose a game or even a set on purpose to save your energy and come back stronger later in the match. In match play in golf, you can concede a hole to your opponent letting him win, but denying him the confidence-building ability to see his ball go into the bottom of the cup. These are all things that you could conceivably fix by changing the rules. But I think in most cases, there are things you could argue are best left alone because it's tough to target specific changes so that they police only the behavior you want to police. I think the hack-a-shack NBA thing is an exception because it's easy to impose a different penalty when you foul someone, when you just grab someone intentionally off the ball, just let the team shoot a free throw and keep the ball, and that behavior would stop immediately. But when somebody has the ball in the NBA and you foul them, then that seems perfectly fine, or at least 
not something that you can create a rule specifically so you only target the thing you want to target. Um, and most of these cases, the other team gets something out of the deal. You get a free throw or a free out in baseball or a game or a set in tennis or a free kick in soccer or a hole in golf. The 49ers' intentional penalty gambit is genius because the thing that the Saints got is totally useless. There is no possible thing that the Saints could get out of you know those extra five yards. And I don't really see what rule you could institute that would be tailored to combat the specific situation. So kudos to Chip Kelly, who is smart enough to coach his team to get an intentional penalty in a game. They lost by 18 points to fall to one and seven on the season. Sounds like a master coach to me. Well, I mean, he, he co- the uh, Saints defense uh, held, held San Francisco to 486 yards. Great job. <laughs> we love your feedback on the Saints defense and uh, all they need to do to improve. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thank you to Brian Curtis of The Ringer for joining us today. Thank you, boys. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening.